This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. We're here on the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. I am your host. I practice law in Salem, Massachusetts, where my firm, Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano, concentrates in the representation of injured workers and their families as a result of on-the-job injuries. We're coming uh, today uh, on this show of Workers' Comp Matters from the annual convention of Willig, and Willig is the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. It is a claimant-based bar association dedicated to the representation of injured workers, and we are holding our convention in Santa Barbara, California. Before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsors, Case Pacer, practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And also, PI Now. Find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the U.S. Visit pinow.com to learn more. I am delighted to have as our guest this morning uh, Dr. Joel Morton. Uh, Dr. Morton is the medical director of Summit Pharmacy. And uh, Dr. Morton is a board-certified family physician. He has had extensive experience as a physician in charge of workers' compensation clinics in North Carolina and elsewhere. He also has training in sports medicine and a recently retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. He served active duty in Iraq in 2005 in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and for that, we and all of us uh, uh, thank you for for that service to our country. Dr. Morton, uh, you're associated with Summit Pharmacy as medical director and perhaps co-founder. Could you describe just very briefly for us what Summit Summit Pharmacy is and how important it is in the workers' compensation field? Sure. Summit Pharmacy uh, is a pharmacy that specializes in care of the injured worker uh, across America today. we ensure the proper care is being delivered to patients uh, as prescribed by physicians and support your claim as you're litigating um, your, your patient's case and make sure that they get the care that they so richly deserve. And you dispense medications in what fashion? You're obviously not a brick and mortar. No, we're, we're a mail-order pharmacy. We, uh, we use uh, some car- several carriers to overnight deliver medications to patients if indicated. Uh, refills can certainly go out uh, patients to patients monthly, uh, and so the patients get things delivered directly to their door. They don't have to go down the street to a pharmacy and, and wait in line or wait for prior authorization or anything of that nature. We get the medications directly to the patient. And I have a very active practice of workers' compensation claimants, and I know over the last several years, a lot of the especially larger workers' comp carriers, insurers, have relationships with a variety, I guess I would call them your competitors, that provide the same type of service. Tell, tell us why Summit Pharmacy might be different from some of these other uh, insurance-driven pharmacy companies. Well, we're um, going to continue to be the patient advocate, and we're working to ensure that the physician's uh, prescribing habits um, are followed uh, and their care is, is, is followed as well, working along with uh, closely with our attorneys um, to help uh, to manage that claim and make sure the patient is getting what they deserve uh, and they get the medications that, that have been ordered. Now, I know probably if I were to talk to my staff 
and ask them and my colleagues in my office and my colleagues in the practice of workers' comp law what is probably the single most vexing problem and the most troublesome almost daily phone call we get from our clients, it would be, I can't get my medication approved. I've paid for the medication and I've submitted my receipts to the insurance company and they're not reimbursing me. And I've started using Summit Pharmacy. Tell me and tell our audience how you have helped on that issue. We we help several patients when it comes to this kind of a problem. We found um, across the country, actually, that that many patients will. For instance, we had a gentleman who walked up to the brick and mortar in his city uh, to pick up his medication, and he was told by the pharmacist that, well, you can't have that because your claim is not accepted at this point. And at this point, then the patient had to walk back out again, certainly dejected, tried again the next day and wasn't able to get that. At Summit Pharmacy, as we work closely with your law firm, and talk to you about the validity of this claim and how good a claim this is, we're going to fill that patient's medications because we understand that the patient needs this treatment in their care to be able to return to work. Uh, And so we're a partner in your case with you by handling this claim, making sure the patient gets their care, and then handling some of the paperwork and some of the phone calls and the issues that frequently vex your your office, certainly we take those cares on. And our our staff, um, many um, are folks who have worked with me in the past as a physician. They have great patient care uh, experience, and they're they're very good at talking with patients and explaining the whole procedure and how they're going to get their medications. In fact, no patient receives medication without a phone call from someone at Summit Pharmacy to make sure that we have a good idea where they live, who their attorney is, who their physician is, and then, of course, various medical questions that we ask them to make sure they get the appropriate care and they get their medications where they should, where they need them. And you bill the insurance company directly? We bill the insurance company directly. We uh, never bill the patient. And if the insurance company denies or the bill builds up, what's your mechanism of, of, of getting paid? I know I will, in the course of my handling the claim, will have to file the claim for reimbursement and... Like I say, always hope to be successful. (laughs) Yes. Well, we're partners with you in, in that whole deal. And as you work on that claim and as we work to get that claim litigated and accepted, we're going to continue to be a partner with you. And we're going to, um, as you basically go out on a limb for that client, uh, we're going to go on that limb with that patient and work with you uh, in that case to make sure we get paid. We will not bill your patient or your client. And what I'd really like to do right now is turn to one of the reasons you're here today at this uh, conference. You're one of the presenters. You are speaking some point in this uh, two-day program. And I know one of the hot topics here and the hot topics nationally, whether it's injured worker representatives, bar association, or the defense insurance groups, the biggest crisis I think out there, and a crisis is probably a correct word, not an overstatement, is chronic pain and opioids. And uh, give us a little idea of the depth and breadth of, of this as a problem. I think you can't understate the whole problem there, and I'm glad that you called it uh, called it what you did. It's a huge problem across America. Uh, the problem of pain, and you can't separate the problem of pain with the opiate problem as well. As uh, the, the members, the folks at the CDC said, we've got an epidemic of opiate um, prescription opiate um, medication ab- abuse, but we also have a public health problem, and that is chronic pain. Uh, there are more patients or more people in chronic pain in America today than diabetics, those with heart disease, those with suffering from strokes, and those folks who have cancer combined. So it's a huge amount of people, and it's a large problem because these people have chronic pain, they're suffering, and we're trying to find, as physicians, proper ways to treat them. Mm -hmm. 
And how have the various jurisdictions in which Summit Pharmacy operates, and I guess you cover pretty much 49 or almost all 50, 50 states. states. You're in California now. We are in California now. Okay. <laughs> what is the, the drug uh, or the uh, prescription that is the most abused? Is it the uh, hydrocodones, the oxycontins? The, that whole classification? It's certainly in the, in the opiate class, the oxycodones, the hydrocodones are very abusable. The oxycontin that you speak of um, years ago, there were some formulation changes that made it very much more difficult to abuse. And the shorter-acting medications, the hydrocodones, especially the oxycodones, are far more abusable uh, and easier to get. I think one of the things to underline is, is that abuse oftentimes comes from diversion. Um, so the patient who received the prescription may actually not be the person abusing it. It could be somebody who stole it or got some leftovers. Uh, we find that those medicines are getting the people who shouldn't be using those medications from other avenues and not quite as frequently from one doctor to one patient. Right. And I know the, the medical community and the legal community and the, the uh, uh, criminal authorities are looking into this. There are a variety of, of requirements that may have always been there but now need to be enforced, and that would be, and I'll have you expand on it, the contract with the physician, the um, testing for use, underuse or overuse, and tell us just sort of about those requirements and how they impact perhaps on the delivery of your product. Sure. There's a lot of things um, and a lot of um, fixes that we need to start trying to apply here. And, and we'll start at the top with, with the states and at the state level with prescription drug monitoring programs. Um, most states, we have one state that's lagging behind, does not have a prescription drug monitoring program. And that's where when physicians prescribe, hopefully we can get to that that database and find out has the patient been shopping around and going elsewhere. And we talk about shopping around and things. As you see, as one of your clients should see a patient, uh, a physician, excuse me, who is prescribing opiates, they, um, they should be seeing somebody who is well-versed in opiate and chronic opiate therapy, and that would include several things. And the first one, as you mentioned, was an opiate contract. That contract should tie the patient to one physician and I believe the physician should tie that patient to one pharmacy to receive their opiates. That physician um, should also have the patient sign on board with certain monitoring procedures, whether it be pill counts, so requiring the patient to come in with pills, whether it be urine drug testing. And urine drug testing, uh, is, this is clinical urine drug testing, not forensic urine drug testing. So this is testing that helps the provider continue to monitor his patient's care as he moves along. Uh, and then the patient um, should be um, required also to not be able to call in and look for refills and need more medications. Those are kind of signs that maybe the patient is uh, abusing that medication or something. So the physician needs to be well-trained and well-versed in these kind of things to be able to provide that kind of care to the patient. Let's try to define some terms. We've been using the, the word opioid. Is it interchangeable with opiate? That is interchangeable with opiate. And that's a poppy-based derivative? Certainly. That we see in heroin and we see in other class... What, class 1 drugs? Class 2, class 2s two, and class 3s, yes. yes. What about the word narcotic? Is that um, synonymous or is that, synth is that more synthetic? I think that you can probably, in today's market, you can use both of those together synonymously, um, and most people do. They'll call it an opiate or they'll call it a narcotic. Narcotic is a little more broad-ranging because you get the synthetic, the semi-synthetic and, and uh, um, opiates as well at that point are the semi-synthetic medications that, uh, that we've been able to produce in the pharma pharmacological world. Now, as far as Summit is concerned, or any pharmacy service that delivers via mail or delivery service, 
are there certain prohibitions or requirements for narcotics or opiates as opposed to, you know, the more standard um, medications? I think there's certain things that we, we put on ourselves to make sure um, that the medication gets to the correct person and it gets delivered appropriately and they get the correct signature for that. So we certainly don't give those medications without signatures and, and somebody has to be there to, uh, to accept that kind of a medication. We've heard a lot, at least in, in the legal circles and the claim circles of uh, formularies and closed formularies. Define that for us. What, what, is, what is that and where, where's the controversy? So the formularies are um, a way for the PBM or the insurer to control. The PBM means? Uh, per, um, excuse me. Uh, that's the pharmacy benefit manager okay. uh, and, and or the insurers to control a bit um, the prescribing habits of the physician. Uh, there's not necessarily, formularies in and of themselves are not necessarily bad or inherently evil. Um, I always harken back to that if the formulary is patient-based and based on the patient getting the appropriate care, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. But the formulary basically would say these are the set of medications or the set of drugs that you can order as a provider for this patient. If you want to order something different, then formularies will either require a prior authorization or there may be a tiered level. So a tier one costs a certain amount of money, a tier two costs a certain amount of money, and a tier three something else. Some of the controversy comes when patients are denied certain medications that the, the physician feels are very strongly indicated in that case, and um, there are some things that can happen with that. If the patient's been on the medication a long time, then whether they are dependent on it or they would withdraw from that kind of a medication, um, or if there's significant delay that comes along with the formulary, whether um, there's an administrative problem and it takes seven days, 10 days, 14 days for the patient to receive care, suddenly we're delaying care that is indicated and probably necessary when written for in that nature. Uh, so, so the delay is a problem. Uh, and then the administrative, the level of administrative duties that, it's, that a formulary may place on a physician's office oftentimes is too difficult for the physician to do, so they merely comply. They change their treatment course and merely comply with what the formulary states. Um, or they try to get the right people in place so that they can do all the prior authorizations and all the administrative duties. And we've been talking primarily about the pill to deal with chronic pain. And uh, most jurisdictions, and I know I practice in Massachusetts, we have adopted, uh, finally, chronic pain guidelines, or at least chronic pain guidelines that offer alternatives to taking that pill as needed or once a day or twice a day. Um, as a physician, I think you will agree with me that when OxyContin first came on the market, it wasn't designed for open-ended long-term use. It was breakthrough pain for a defined period of time, either post-surgical or post some type of painful treatment. It's evolved into perhaps the easy fix for a patient who comes in and is complaining of pain. Physician renews the prescriptions. What are the other and perhaps more appropriate ways that we really ought to be looking at more seriously for dealing and controlling chronic pain? Well, I think there's several things there that go into that. And one of the first things when it comes, since we're speaking of opiates and things like OxyContin and things, uh, is that an opiate should not be a sole treatment. Uh, so there's always a red flag. And even our pharmacy, there's a red flag. If we receive nothing but an opiate prescription, that physician routinely gets called and we start asking questions about that. So an opiate shouldn't be the only course of treatment. 
Even before treatment starts, however, the American Pain Society, the American Academy of Pain Management, all suggest several things were to, are to happen. That physician needs to do a, an excellent history and physical. That history and physical should include some mental health questions, whether the patient has battled with addiction in the past, whether there's any depression in the past because of the potential of adding an opiate with depression uh, and things of that nature. So there's a lot that goes into things before a patient receives opiates. But if the patient has moderate to severe pain that's uncontrolled and it's affecting their quality of life, their ability to function well, or their ability to even return to work, then an opiate may be an appropriate um, choice. And while we're talking about opiates, uh, we need more research. Uh, We don't have a lot of good evidence based once we hit three, four months what we should do with opiates. Beyond opiate use, there's several other ways to go with things. And this is important as well because there are good medications out there. Some, believe it or not, are anti-seizure medications that are wonderful for pain control. Some are antidepressants that are wonderful for pain control. Um, Anti-inflammatories, which I'm sure you know about, and muscle relaxers are all available to patients. And certainly some of these should be first-line medications before we start talking about chronic opiate use. Uh, There are a few other things that are important here. Um, One of them is cognitive behavioral therapy. The American Academy of Pain Management certainly pushes that as one of the best psychiatric or best mental health ways to help treat patients who are in pain. And then many of the physical modalities, whether it be physical therapy, exercise therapy, um, modalities such as acupuncture, um, dry needling, uh, and manipulative therapy. I'm an osteopathic physician, and I, I would be remiss not to mention the fact that you can manipulate a lot of these spine injuries and give people some uh, some relief. Finally, back to the pharmaceutical side of things, I think some newer and no, or, or fairly newer novel therapies, whether it be compounded medications as one of those things, um, should be entertained. Um, they're routinely dismissed by um, payers um, for certain reasons. And once again, we've got a huge, huge problem of, of pain and a huge problem of opiate abuse. And as such, w- we need to start entertaining whether these medications also uh, would play a role in, in uh, the, the treatment and care of pain. And when you mention cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I see that, you know, I deal with my clients sometimes daily, certainly weekly or, or, or somewhat frequently, And the impact of being out of work, being in pain, having the financial issues of a contested claim or or benefit levels that may not be adequate, and the dynamics in the family, this all swirls together so that pain and or dysfunction of any sort isn't a single identifiable source. And it's clear to me, it's been clear to me for years that the psychological management of the patient is oftentimes critical and oftentimes early rather than later because the later this goes on, I think statistics will tell us the success rate goes down exponentially. Yet I found through whatever reason, insurance companies, claims reps are very loath to get involved in the psychological, psychiatric end of things. They fear they're buying the psych case that for some reason then gets out of control. And I know that in our treatment guidelines in Massachusetts, they've recognized first and foremost that a comprehensive initial psychosocial, psychopharmacological evaluation is necessary. And I guess you probably can endorse that wholeheartedly. Oh, I I, I couldn't say more and uh, applaud you more than understanding the complexity of pain. And pain is not merely I hit my finger with a hammer and it hurts. When pain becomes chronic, it pulls in um, psychological problems, as you said, the social problems. It's a huge, huge monster, basically, to kind of treat. And if we don't attack 
or treat at each of those levels, I think we run a risk of losing this patient. And part of, I believe, part of the problem with opiate abuse here and that we can, we can work together, physicians, pharmacies, attorneys, the payers, is understand that and realize that this delay and deny tactic throws the physician in a tough place because not many folks who are doing physical therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy are able to do what we do at Summit Pharmacy and basically get care to this patient while we're waiting for this case to become uh, a case that's been accepted. And if we're in this to fix the opiate problem, I think we got to sit with the payers and say, look, this is well understood that this is a problem. We need to make sure our patients can get cognitive behavioral therapy or can get their physical therapy and things sooner instead of later. At this point, I think we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we will pick up our discussion with Dr. Joel Morton of Summit Pharmacy. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest-growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue-generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at CasePacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to our show on Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce. I'm with Dr. Joel Morton of Summit Pharmacy. We are talking about not only the product that Summit Pharmacy deals in, which is the supply of pharmaceuticals to injured workers in a workers' compensation claim, but also the bigger issue of chronic pain and how to deal with it. I know we started to get into a discussion of the alternatives to pain medication, and we talked about the various modalities. What are, I know that I've seen acupressure and acupuncture, uh, facet injections, uh, tell us, you know, some of the, the other medical treatments for chronic pain outside of perhaps a psychiatric or psychological realm. Certainly, absolutely. So some of the invasive treatments that you were just speaking of can go from acupressure, which is more pressure to perhaps like a trigger point area. Uh, and a trigger point area is an area of muscle that's just bound up and it's a chronic kind of, it's a pain producer basically. Um, acupuncture, which is using a small needle to get to that area. And then there's some things, dry needling or even um, injections of a steroid or, a, uh, or something into one of those areas uh, that can help to relax that muscle and nerve area to decrease some of the pain. When you talk about facet injections, those are injections that actually go all the way down to the, to the spine and to the, the part of the spine joint that 
causes most of the motion. And if somebody's got an inflamed or an irritated joint or they've got some arthritis that, that was there before but they were injured and now that joint is irritated, you can inject the joint. It's very similar to injecting, say, a knee joint, except it's a little more difficult to get to and you require frequently imaging like um, with a C-arm or it's guided by imaging, by x-rays and things of that nature. So, so that's a facet injection. And then right down to disc injections, which is an injection around a bulging disc that may be causing irritation to a nerve root. Uh, so there's a lot of invasive treatments that can be performed uh, to help alleviate some of the pain. And a lot of this stuff would be focusing on the patient's back. But even in things like carpal tunnel, where you can inject uh, the carpal tunnel with steroids, or, or somebody who's got a lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow, there are different therapies, whether it be steroid injections or um, platelet-rich plasma injections. There's a lot of things out there that are, that are available that are a little bit more invasive. And then finally, I think the other physical modalities that we touched on briefly, uh, physical therapy, exercise therapy, manipulative therapy, are all ways to help the patient and not only acutely help the patient, but then teach the patient so that if their pain begins back again or it starts worsening, give them a set of exercises, a set of tools that they can utilize to uh, to kind of decrease the amount of pain that's going on. Um, I'll give you for example. Um, I've suffered from back pain for the last 20 to 25 years. Um, I used to do roofing and siding and do a lot of construction work. Uh, And I've got a little bit of arthritis in my back and it flares up every now and then depending what I do. Uh, I see the the physical therapist maybe once a year. I get a new set of exercises to do and the more I I stay up with my exercises and, and keep my core strong and do the range of motion exercises that are particular to my low back, um, I have less episodes of pain. I wouldn't say I never have pain, but less episodes of pain, which help me to function better and walk around and not be in chronic pain. So all of these are very, very important in the treatment of somebody who has chronic pain. And I've noticed over the years, my clients have been getting a lot more uh, injections, either lidocaine or novocaine or steroid injections, uh, epidural facet joint, you call it what you will. Uh, these very, they seem to come in series, a series of perhaps three over a span of time or limited per year. Are they strictly palliative or short-term, or can they be, cur- if not curative, longer-lasting, or is it individual? It's, it's fairly individual, the response that somebody's going to get from some of those injections. Uh, you can get anywhere from zero relief to a month to three months to six months relief from some of these injections. Some of the thoughts are um, is that you get longer relief, and when you get that relief, then you can kind of parlay that into an exercise program or some kind of a physical program that the patient may not have been able to do initially, but now they can do so they can maintain that and they're not having those symptoms any longer. Certainly an epidural injection, if there's a nerve root that's being irritated by a bulging disc and we can decrease the swelling around that nerve root with an injection, then possibly there you're getting a, a significant, I would say, I guess in quotes, a cure just by getting the pressure off the nerve root so the patient's not suffering from that, that uh, nerve pain that they experiencing. And it seems, you know, I've been, I've been doing workers' comp for several decades now, and things come and go. We've had chemopapillin injections where they would inject actually a, an enzyme to shrink disc tissue. We've had thermograms that somehow could actually document the presence of pain with hot spots on our radiograph. Um, we've seen a TENS unit and varieties of that. Tell us a little bit about the, the mechanism of somehow interfering with the pathways of pain between the 
the, the source of the pain or the area of the trauma in the brain, the, the electrical conduit, and how effective a TENS units, and maybe what's the current 21st century for variation of a TENS unit, which is, uh, you could describe what that is. That, that's actually interesting and a very uh, interesting question because uh, we certainly have plenty of medications that are also aimed at those those pain fibers and 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 the uh, transmission of pain up and down the spine uh, as you were so uh, one of the things that you're probably have seen or, or you've, you've seen your patients on would be a lidocaine patch, or, uh, which is uh, lidocaine, as you know, is like Novocaine. But that patch is applied not necessarily to numb the backup, but it's applied to interfere with, um, down at, uh, believe it or not, down at the, uh, the cellular level or the, uh, there's some channels, uh, sodium and potassium channels, that it interferes in that area, which reduces the amount of pain stimulation going from the pain site to the to the brain and back again. Uh, there are plenty of other medicines. I, I mentioned earlier some of the um, seizure medicines that we utilize, and they work along that pathway as, as well with gabapentin, uh, which is one of the pain modulars as well. Um, I'll also say that many of the compounded medications that pain uh, physicians are using, which are some of the newer things that we're seeing in pain, um, have several of these things in there. So a pain compound may include something that's a nerve blocker as well as a lidocaine-like medication, as well as a pain reliever in one compounded medication to deliver the, those medications directly to, to the site and hopefully work on that transmission of pain up and down those, uh, those fibers. And now it's my turn to transmit a little bit of pain to you. We have, <laughs> we have a feature on Workers' Comp Matters called Case of the Day. And, you know, it, certainly to me in the field of Workers' Comp, some of the cases that somehow make the literature are interesting oftentimes tragic, sometimes a little humorous in a combination of the two, but I'd like to put you on the spot a bit. I'm going to describe a case, and I'm going to ask you to predict or uh, give us your opinion as to how this case turned out. And of course, as I always do, I do caution anybody listening that these cases are very specific and fact-specific to the case, and they vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But I found a case that comes to us from the state of Alabama, it is the case of Mercy Logging Company versus Johnny Odom. And this is a case where Johnny Odom was a long-distance uh, truck driver for Mercy Logging. I guess they hauled uh, timber. And he and two other employees were driving down the road. And as they were driving down the road, they noticed a diamondback rattlesnake in the road. And they were very cognizant of these types of snakes because they go into the woods and they are a distinct hazard to loggers and other people in the woods. And Odom, who was driving the truck, uh, said, I'm going to run over that thing. And the co-worker implored him, don't run over it, let's catch it. So Odom pulled over to the side of the road and he had some experience in gathering snakes. And he went and he used his hands and he was a six-foot, three-inch-long diamondback rattlesnake and as he picked it up from behind the head of course you can predict what happened the snake bit him and he had a very tragic and unfortunate result and brought a claim for workers compensation benefits and this was resisted by the insurance company the industrial board in Alabama awarded benefits and the case was reviewed and it went to the appellate level and uh, the position of the employer was that Odom undertook this on his own, that uh, he could have just continued driving or he could have run over the snake, but when he went and actually picked it up and got bit, he should not be entitled to workers' comp. So 
Tell us how you think this case came up. Hmm. <laughs> That's, that is an interesting case. Well, I would have to um, certainly understand where the insurer is coming from, as that doesn't seem like it's in the normal duties of a truck driver uh, hauling wood. However, he was currently, at the time, um, hauling and uh, delivering wood. So um, as he was working at the time that the uh, accident happened, I'm going to have to say that it, they ruled in the favor of the, uh, the, the worker who was removing the snake. Well, if I had the buzzer that we hear in the game shows, you would get the buzzer. That is not how the oh. reviewing court ruled. <laughs> However, I think that's the way they should rule. But you, you actually isolated a very important point. In order to be covered under workers' comp, the injury not only has to arise out of the employment, um, in the course of your employment, but it has to arise out of your employment. So the appellate court did indeed find that he was in the course of his employment. He was working, driving the truck. But when you got to the narrower issue, did it arise out of his employment, uh, the court uh, on review held that he voluntarily left the safety of his vehicle and that the snake posed no occupational risk, and that once he voluntarily exited the truck and attempted to catch a stake, the risk of his injury was personal to him and not sufficiently related to his employment to be covered. Now, I will tell you that that case could have turned out differently. There was a case in Massachusetts very similar. It didn't involve a snake, but it involved a uh, driver of a vehicle down the highway, and there was a coil of rope lying in the middle of the interstate that was posing a hazard to other vehicles. And that injured client, who became injured, parked over the side of the road, ran out in between traffic, and got the coil of rope and got hit by the car. And he was denied workers' comp, but it was reinstated in the Massachusetts Supreme Court on the Good Samaritan Doctrine that he was in an act that... And I, while it may not have been benefiting his employer, it benefited his employer in the broader sense that uh, he should not be penalized for performing that type of act of removing a hazard in the roadway. But um, you were right on the fact that he was in the course of his employment, but the Alabama court very narrowly construed whether he was, uh, this arose out of the incidents of his employment. And that's how very technical and tricky these cases can become. So uh, to sum up, I've got a claimant practice and I've got a, an injured worker who comes in and says, uh, you know, Liberty Mutual Travelers, AIG, they're not, resp- uh, they're not uh, paying for my prescriptions and I, I have a, a Summit Pharmacy contact. How do we initiate getting you folks involved? What's, what's the steps? You're, you're not located. There is no brick and mortar. There's no store to go to. And my client's got the prescription or his doctor has got it on file with CVS or Walgreens. How do you folks take sure. it from there? Sure. So there's several well, ways that can uh, that can happen. If they're sitting in your office, uh, you can call us. That's one of the easiest ways at our toll-free number. And one of our girls in enrollment will take all the necessary information, your patient's name and their physician's name and things of that nature. Um, so that's simple and easy. If you've got your own enrollment form, you can actually fax it to us, and then we'll get in touch with your patient and, or your client and make sure that, uh, that um, their medications are, are delivered to them. We've actually got an online portal where you can go on and... Uh, although I think our site's under construction, so don't go right now, um, where you can do it online. Uh, or the patient themselves can actually call us as well. And how do you and, uh, physically get possession of the actual written script? So once we get the information from the patient and we get the physician's um, uh, pres- prescri- the prescribing uh, provider's information, then we'll call the, prov- the provider themselves. Uh, if, uh, if it's a non-C2 or it's not a scheduled drug, it's not a narcotic or an opiate, um, then the 
provider will oftentimes fax us or they'll e-scribe us. If they've got an electronic uh, medical record, they'll e-scribe us and we'll get the prescription that way. If it's a uh, medication that requires we have the actual hard copy of the prescription, like most of the C or all the C2s do, then we will um, ask that the provider mail that to us or send it to us uh, by FedEx. We'll actually send a, a carrier, one of the carriers, out to the office and the carrier will pick it up from the doc's office and we'll get it sent directly to us overnighted so we can get the patient the medicines that they need. If it's at another pharmacy, so if it's at a CVS somewhere and we can get it transferred to us, then we'll do a transfer from pharmacy to pharmacy. Well, Dr. Morton, I want to thank you very much. I know we, we covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time in a very complicated and controversial and important area. It affects the lives of our clients, their families, their health, their well-being, and their mortality. We didn't even get into those statistics, but I think those listening can probably guess pretty, pretty well that long-term opiate use does not have a good outcome in a lot of a lot of instances. How can people get in touch with you folks? And then, uh, again, thank you very much for joining us on Workers' Comp Matters. Well, you can find us at SummitRx.com. Uh, you can always call the pharmacy at 877-678-5400. Uh, and uh, uh, we'd be glad to take care of your help in any, any cases that we can help you with. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us on Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you. Thank you. This is Alan Pierce. This is um, another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. We're thankful that you listen to our show. We hope that you listen to uh, our other shows on Legal Talk Network and go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.